of disciple-making. And uh, we're doing this series because we want to understand more fully what disciple-making is and how we do it so that we can be more efficient as a church family and how we make disciples and uh, better at it as individuals too. Now, um, people do, might be asking why on earth are we actually going to do doing this because it's crucial to everything that we already do as a life of the church. And that is true, that's what we say, but it's often good just to take stock, uh, to look at what we're doing and think about what we have been doing, uh, to clarify exactly what our mission is for the future, evaluate whether or not we're on track, uh, whether or not things are actually aligned, our practices aligned with what God wants for us. And that's the whole point of it. It's about calibration. It's about making sure that we're doing what God would have us do. Um, the whole point of this five-part series on elements of disciple-making, I mean, it is for clarification. There should, be, there should be no one in our church family who, who when asked the question, what is our vision, should be, could say, oh, I don't know. I don't know. It should be absolutely crystal clear for us. And everyone should be on the same page with the kind of clarity that if you poked them at 3 a.m. in their sleep and woke them up and said, what's life all about? They're able to tell you exactly what that is. So, that's the point of it. So, in the next five weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at um, a, a, the subject of disciple-making. And I'm, uh, it's a, I'm leaning heavily, and I mean that, heavily, heavily, on a book called The Vine Project, which is one of the books I read on my study leave. The opening section of this book, which talks about clarifying your convictions around what disciple-making is, helps individuals and churches to figure out what they should be doing and how to improve it. And also, that when you look at what you're doing and figure out, whoa, we're not quite there, it gives you the helpful tools to bring you into alignment with God's purposes. So, we're going to ask uh, five questions over the next five sermons in this series. Why make disciples? That's tonight. What exactly is a disciple? Uh, how are disciples made? Who makes disciples? And uh, where to make disciples. In fact, you know what would be really, really interesting? If you were to write a one-sentence answer to each of those five questions, and then at the end of the series, write out five answers to those five questions again and just see how they compare, that would be an interesting one. I'll post it on the Facebook page and stick it in the bulletin so that we know what these questions are. And uh, yeah, we're going to look at two uh, passages tonight, and there are some uh, sermon note sheets for you. If you didn't get one, and you want one, if you put your hand up, the stewards will bring you one, and they've also got Bibles. So if you want to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 7, if you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up, they'll happily bring one to you just now. We're going to read from Revelation 7 and from Colossians 1. And we'll do it as we go, starting with Revelation 7. Just as they're going out, let me uh, lead us in prayer. Father, may you, as the one who brought, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, equip us with everything good for doing your will. And may you work in us through this sermon and the ones that follow everything that is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever. Amen. 
So we're asking the question tonight, why make disciples? There is a five-word answer to that, because Jesus told us to, okay? It, it actually is as simple as that. Um, it's a good answer as well. It's clear and it's unambiguous. It's, taken, it's derived from Matthew chapter 28, uh, which, and we say that when we recognize God's, Jesus' authority and the necessity of our obedience. Matthew 28 reads, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, because Jesus told us to, simple. But there's more to it than that, and I guess you guessed that. Because in God's kindness, He's given us much more than a command to help us answer the question, why make disciples? And I want to look at two passages that really give us quite a full-orbed picture of what God is doing in history and our world and why we must do everything that we can to align ourselves with this purpose, with his purpose. And uh, two passages and two corresponding points uh, in answer to the question, why make disciples? Uh, the, a the answer, first of all, number one, is to glorify Jesus. And that's Revelation 7, 9 to 17. Revelation 7, 9 to 17. Now, as we read this, I want you to be asking, what does this text say about Jesus? Look particularly for what it says about him. We'll read from verse 9. After this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Exquisite. So what does it say about Jesus? I want to say, first of all, it says that Jesus is the king. We're going to just dash through this very, very quickly. Verse 9 tells us plain and simply, he's the one who's on the throne, and his kingdom is obviously global because he has zillions of people around him from every nation, tribe, and tongue. The second thing that we see is that he is not only the king, he is the lamb. 
as verses 9 and 14 state. Now, when you read about lambs in the Bible, uh, don't think cute and springy. Uh, think death and blood and sacrifice and things like that. Uh, in the Bible, lambs die. Uh, not for nothing, of course, in God's sacrificial system that he set up, they died as substitutes. That's what this lamb, Jesus, did. He died especially for the people who are gathered around him. And verse 14 of this passage makes clear to us that there is this direct link between his blood and their presence around his throne, okay? A direct link between their presence around his throne and the blood that he has shed. And then in verse 10, of course, heaven's praises spell out for us precisely why this lamb died. And it defines this existence that the gathered people now enjoy. The reason why he died, what's the word in verse 10? Salvation. What defines this existence that the gathered people now enjoy? It's one word salvation. It is rescue. It is redemption. But we'll get to that. The third thing that we see here about what this says about Jesus talks about what he receives as a result of being the king and the lamb, the one who holds all authority that chose to lay, his, lay down his life for sinners. Jesus, as a result of that saving work is glorified. That's, and we see that again in verse 10. They cried out in a loud voice. What are people singing about in heaven? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All of heaven agrees. They join in verse 12. Amen. Praise and glory, wisdom, thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. And then the focus of the praises is all based on this explanation of who Jesus is, not only as the king, not only as the lamb, but as the shepherd who shelters them from all the, the, the different experiences of living life in a place that's scorched by sin. He's their shepherd. He's their shelter. And if you believe in him tonight, he's yours. And all the credit, all the glory in this gathering of salvation is his. All the glory belongs to his. Everybody here views their gathering around Jesus' throne as salvation. They attribute it to him. Even those attendees in heaven, the angels and so on, the thing that they marvel at most is the salvation that is wrought for his people through him and they're not mistaken. Now, I want to say from Revelation 7, quite simply, that this is God's great goal, to glorify his son Jesus in the midst of the people he has rescued, and that's what the picture's for. We're going to build a picture as we go over these five weeks, and here's the first thing we want to see. The thing that God has us heading for, all of history will culminate in this Revelation 7 picture. Fundamentally, it will culminate in the, the, the judgment of those who do not believe. That's what Revelation 20 is about. And it will culminate in the descent of the new heaven and new earth, which talks about this forever state 
in the new heaven and new earth that we will enjoy. But essentially, if you look at the people who are present in this picture, it's God's redeemed people gathered around Jesus Christ, giving him unending and all-deserving glory and praise. It's beautiful. That's where we're headed. Now, I want to say that it's a scene that's promised and pictured again and again in the Bible. It doesn't really matter where you look. You can go to Isaiah or Hebrews or Titus 2 or Ephesians 1. It doesn't really matter. It's all there. It shows this is where we're headed. And here's the point. Here's how it helps us answer the question, why make disciples? We make disciples because fundamentally, God is redeeming a people for his son to bring him glory. God is redeeming a people for his son, his beloved son, for his glory. Now that is the compelling insight that God gives us that's more than the command of Christ. I'm not belittling that in the slightest. Don't email me. I will delete it. But alongside that command, and out of love we obey, we have this compelling insight that this is God's purpose in all existence. This is where history is headed. The worship of Jesus, all glory and praise to him, around his throne, that's heaven. What's your idea of heaven? This is the picture the Bible holds out for us and points out that exquisite joy is found only in this. I used to work beside a lady who said to me, I don't really care what's in heaven as long as there's an Asda because Asda meets all my needs. What an impoverished picture compared to the glories of Revelation chapter 7. This is the insight God has given us, the understanding of disciple-making that's meant to drive us. And what it does is, when you start to grasp this is the why of disciple-making, it, it gives us something greater than ourselves to live for, something longer than a lifetime to live for, even. It gives us something bigger than the accumulation of stuff to pursue. when we understand that God does all to, in the end, glorify his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to add that God never pursues his glory at the expense of the good of his people, nor does he seek our good at the expense of his glory. He can't do that. But he has designed his eternal purpose so that his glory and our goods are inextricably connected. This is what God's doing. And that's part one of the answer to why we make disciples. Uh, part two is this, to rescue people from darkness. This is the flip side of it. This is what gives you the backstory to the people who are gathered around the throne. And for this, we need to go back to Colossians chapter one, and in particular, verses 13 and 14. Colossians chapter one Verses 13 and 14. Let me just read a little bit from, let me read from verse 9 actually, just so that we're, so it's embedded in the context. I'll read from verse 9 of Colossians 1. And this time as we read through it, I want you to look particularly for what it says about people 
and what God has done for his people, okay? Specifically, what God has done for his people. For this reason, since we have heard about you, this is verse 9, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask the God, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So what does it say about people? Verses 13 and 14 in particular, we see that people are in darkness before they meet Jesus. That's their plight. That's not often how it seems, of course. Certainly to the people of this world, that's certainly how I viewed myself. I was converted when I was 19 years old, and before that, you know, I knew that there were bad things that I had done, but I mean, if you had said to me that fundamentally my life was in darkness, I would have laughed it off. But many people in this world would say that. They'd say, oh, I'm not in darkness. No, 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 no. We're, we're educated, healthy, peace-loving people. We're actually quite nice to our people. We give to charity. We've stopped using plastic bags. But, but, but essentially, people are blind to the darkness they're in. That's why answering this question is so crucial. That's why reflecting on and remembering this morning's sermon is so crucial. Now here's the problem with this. The church actually falls into the same folly. Yes, people in the church can become worldly, so they become like those who are in darkness. But I think what I'm talking about here is more the case that we think, oh, well, their darkness isn't that dark. They don't seem that lost, we might think. And that is absolutely catastrophic for disciple-making because it saps the urgency out of it for a start, right? But then what we do is we just settle into week-by-week church existence where we're happy to hear God's word preached and sung and we meet up with our friends. And to be frank, we end up just being reasonably content that the other people in our lives who don't know Jesus are, according to God's view, going to hell. We're content with that. Hell, where that, this present darkness becomes a permanent state. But here's the good news. Colossians 1 tells us that people are transferred from darkness to light when they meet Jesus. And that's reflected in the picture that will come on screen shortly. This is what God is doing. 
The people who are all gathered around the throne are people who have been rescued from this darkness that the world is in, the darkness of this unbelief that they themselves steep themselves in and enjoy, and the, the very darkness that the, the evil one, Satan, is working to achieve. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, we read in 2 Corinthians. But God is all about rescuing people as we saw in the gathered picture of people from every nation, every tribe and tongue through and by the death and resurrection of Jesus. He transfers them then when they put their faith and trust in him into the kingdom of his son. And that kingdom is definitively the opposite of the kingdom of darkness. It's the kingdom of light. And Jesus himself said that this is what he came to do. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. And in, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I'm desperate for you to understand this. The Bible says that you are in darkness, but to enjoy this glorious worship in heaven, to know the joy of sins forgiven and new life in Christ's name, you have to be transferred transferred from this kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the Son the Father loves. And you can do that by facing up to sin. That that is what we are born in, that is what we are, and that is what we cannot escape unless we throw ourselves on the mercy and the grace of God who does what we could never do for us. He sent his son to live a perfect life. We could never do that. He died on our place as a sacrifice to take away our sins so that when we believe in him, we have life in his name, now and forever. And he calls on everyone who faces up to their sin and faces up to the reality of Jesus Christ's death on the cross he says, if you turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus in faith, you will be saved. Saved from that darkness, transferred into the kingdom of light. If that's you tonight, why don't you ask the person who brought you? Uh, why don't you come and ask us? There's a prayer team at the front. We'd love to chat to you about that. Grab me, I'll be at the door for about 10 minutes after the service. Or the folks at the sofas at the welcome point uh, down there in the corner. We'd be glad to chat to this about you. This is what God is doing. He exists. This is what he's all about. And this is what this church is all about. Now, people are transferred not only from darkness to light when they meet Jesus, as the picture suggests, but people are used then to rescue others after they meet Jesus. People are used to rescue others after they meet Jesus. This is crucial, isn't it? We saw this, something of this this morning anyway. But God employs all he saves in disciple making. God employs all he saves, all in disciple making. But sometimes it's only a few that are hard at it. Uh, Marshall and Payne, who wrote the book The Vine Project, quote William Booth's famous and shocking, uh, A Vision for the Lost. It's worth reading. He says... I saw a dark and stormy ocean. Over it, black clouds hung heavily. And in that ocean, I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings. 
And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that arose with its summit towering high. And all around the base of this great rock I saw a vast platform. Onto this platform I saw with delight a number of the poor, struggling wretches climbing out of the angry, dark ocean. And I saw that a few of those who were already safe on the platform, they were helping the poor people still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. On looking more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued industriously working and scheming by ladders and ropes and boats and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers from the sea. Here and there were some who actually jumped into the water, regardless of the consequences, in their passion to rescue the perishing. But as I looked on, I saw that the occupants of that platform were quite a mixed company. That is, they were divided into sets, and they occupied themselves with different things. But only a very few of them seemed to make it their business to get people out of the sea. Only a few. But what puzzled me most, Booth continues, was the fact that though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, it seemed the memory of the darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that these people did not seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care, about the poor, perishing ones who were still struggling and drowning right before their eyes, many of whom were their own husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and children. It's a stark picture, isn't it? It both reminds us of the darkness of those who are yet unbelievers, and at the same time shows us how God is at work through the work of his people, the church, to rescue people from that darkness and bring them to safety. God is transferring people from darkness to light still. He's still doing it today. And this is exactly what is happening when someone is becoming a Christian. Think of people you know who've become Christians recently. Some of those that we've baptized here in the last year even. When we hear their stories, their testimonies, what do we think is happening with these people when they become Christians? Again, Marshall and Payne get us thinking about this. They introduce us to a guy called Fred and they say, okay, let's say Fred believes and is baptized what exactly do we believe is happening with Fred, this new Christian? Well, the world thinks Fred is turning to religion and spirituality just to kind of feel, fill some, some, some gaps or some needs in his life. Maybe it's for meaning or for belonging or something like that. Most will say, oh, good for you, Fred. And, you know, if it helps you in your life, you go for it. That's what the world thinks about what's happening to Fred when he becomes a Christian. But what about some Christians? 
Well, according to some Christians, what's happening to Fred is not much different to the world's description, maybe with the exception that, that Fred, the God Fred is turning to is, is maybe really there, or he is really there, and really will help Fred improve his life. But again, the key outcome that some Christians look for is that Fred becomes a better Fred. But that still falls short, doesn't it? Of discipling, of what a disciple is. Well, according to other Christians, still, God is doing something more than merely improving Fred's life. He's opening Fred's eyes to this new and personal relationship with Jesus, a relationship that helps him enjoy peace with God now and entry into heaven when he dies. Now, that's true, but it still needs to go further to reflect what a true disciple is. Because fundamentally, When we zoom out and see what's happening with Fred with the benefit of looking at Colossians 1, 13 and 14 and the passage in Revelation 7, we can say that what is going on is not just about Fred or even primarily about Fred. What is happening amazingly is that God is continuing to move all of history towards, and in this case, this little fragment of history that's known as Fred, towards its final goal. And with the conversion of Fred, God is laying one more brick in the building of the church of Jesus Christ. He is building his church and adding to the crowds that Revelation 7 congregation, and he's doing it one Fred at a time. That's what he's doing. And that's what we see in the pic. People being moved from darkness to light, being transferred from one kingdom to the other through the lamb who died, that's the cross, as we move further, closer and closer towards that great day when we will be gathered round the throne, glorifying and praising Jesus forever. So, if we want more than just the because Jesus told us to answer to the why of disciple making, we can say this. Put the next slide on, please. Why make disciples? We make disciples because God's, God's goal in all of history is to glorify his son in the midst of the people he has rescued from darkness. That's what he's done with you, brother or sister. That's what he's still doing through us, brothers and sisters. We're gonna respond just now in praise, first of all. We have just reflected on two passages that remind us of God's great salvation. If the band could join me up front, of those who, who were in darkness, transferred into the kingdom of the Son, Jesus, the kingdom of light. And we're gonna stand and sing about that salvation as we sing two songs together, and then Matt's gonna join us again and lead us in a little bit more of a time of response. Let's stand to sing.